Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, November the 27th, 2023, the last Monday in November of the year. Um, few months, actually, last year, we did a show with the historian Richard Overy, one of the great historians of the Second World War. We asked whether the Second World War had ended yet. It doesn't seem as if it has on lots of levels, particularly given the amazing amount of books coming out about it and essentially particularly connected with the Holocaust. Um, a few weeks ago, we did a show with the historian Roger Morehouse on a uh, a Polish diplomatic plot to save some Polish Jews. He has an interesting new book out, The Forgers, The Forgotten History of the Holocaust's Most Audacious Rescue Operation. And actually, Roger introduced me to Danny Finkelstein, who uh, another distinguished British journalist and writer who has a new book out called Two Roads Home, uh, Hitler, Stalin, The Miraculous Survival of His Family. His mother and fa father's family were displaced persecuted in the war. Some of them ended up in concentration camps, but they all survived. Incredible stories. And yet the stories continue. Today, um, we're talking to a novelist, not a nonfiction writer, but a novel very much based on nonfiction, uh, built around the Warsaw Ghetto and the Jewish experience there. We Must Not Think of Ourselves. Uh, it's by Lauren Grodstein. This is her sixth book. It, it's getting huge acclaim. Got a brilliant review this morning in the New York Times. It's uh, Jenna Bush's book of the week. So it's going to become one of the major books of the year. But Lauren, first of all, let me ask you, and, and, and please don't take this in the wrong way. What else is there to say about oh, uh, the Second World War that hasn't, I mean, there have been so many books, especially about the, the, the Holocaust. For, for, for someone like you, you've written five books before. Did you ever scratch your head and think, am I saying anything original? I had no interest in ever writing a book about the Holocaust. That was not the plan. Um, I never would have had I not stumbled upon this archive during a family trip to Warsaw in honor of my nephew's bar mitzvah in 2019. Um, it was a long trip. It was often a very painful trip. Uh, and by the end of it, our time in Warsaw, we um, were ready to uh, leave, and most of us did peel off to see a soccer stadium, but a few of us stuck around and went to see the Emanuel Ringelblum Archive at the Jewish Historical Institute. It was uh, a room full of stories, full of um, newspapers and drawings and diary entries, all the work of the secret group of archivists called the Oneg Shabbat group under the direction of an historian named Emanuel Ringelblum. I spent hours in that room with my sister. And when it was time to leave, I said to her, you know, there, there are a thousand stories in that room. And she said, well, you should write one of them. And I said, no way. I, what on earth, to, to echo your question, what could I possibly say that hasn't been already said? But the thing about the Holocaust that, that has, you know, one of, the, one of the smaller and yet very poignant tragedies to me is the way that so many victims have become nothing more than the manner of their deaths so that we lose the story of their lives. Um, and they just become Holocaust victims. And so in these diary entries and these journals, what I saw was um, a trove of individual stories that I just found fascinating. 
and I um, I decided just to give it a shot. And during the pandemic, which was a time when we were, you know, trapped in our houses and there was mysterious death outside, I found a tiny window. I would never in a million years want to compare what I went through during the pandemic to what people went through in the ghetto, but there was this, this sense of fear that I understood quite profoundly. And that 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 fear of what was lurking outside gave me a bit of insight and ability to try to tell a story. The other truth is I didn't really care if I did it well. I was doing it for myself. It kept me busy during the pandemic. Whatever else happened to this book was whatever else happened. Some people baked bread and some people, you know, ran marathons and I wrote this book. Tell me a little bit more about the archive. What, what, what was or what is in it? It's, um, well, to give you some background, it's. Emmanuel Ringelblum was an historian um, and an academic. When he was locked into the ghetto in November of 1940, he understood immediately that this was a very crucial moment in the history of Polish Jews, which was the second biggest Jewish population in the world at that time. So he decided to um, gather 32 that we know of historians, um, I'm sorry, archivists, and they were intellectuals and rabbis and writers and artists and journalists. And they wrote down everything. He gave them notebooks. Um, and they did the first study on starvation um, of any real size uh, using studying the children of the ghetto. They wrote about the theater and the schooling. They, they wrote everything and it's all there. It was dug up by the three surviving members of the archive um, of the archivist group of Oneg Shabbat. The first tranche of documents was dug up in 1946. The rest was dug up in 1950. And um, it was slowly uh, translated into English uh, over many years. And it's it's just this amazing trove that I find that not that many people know about. And it was, uh, and, and it contained the story of the ghetto itself or more broadly of Polish Jewry? Well, it didn't contain any one story. It contained hundreds if not thousands of stories. You can find a story of a girl there who is told, who is considered uh, not very pretty, but very smart. And she tutors English. You can tell um, stories, uh, you can see stories of, um, excuse me, one moment. There are stories of, um, artists, there are stories of people who are collaborating. There are all sorts of stories and they're all gathered there in these books um, for English readers or just in, in, in actual documents for people who can read Yiddish or Hebrew or Polish. You don't see a story of, of any one, there's no one narrative. It's, it's, it's many stories. It's a, a patchwork. It's a, it's a, it's a quilt. It's a, it's a massive, massive quilt and not all the pieces match, and not all the pieces are very pretty. Uh, the other thing that I really wanted to talk about was the fact that, that Jews and their victimhood were not necessarily always angelic. Again, th there were people who had to make terrible choices. They made sometimes the best choices they could, sometimes the easiest choices they could, sometimes the most profitable choices that they could. They were you know, human beings in all their dimensionality. I'm sure, um, Lauren, you're familiar with much of the, the literature on the Holocaust. Uh, we had Judy Battalion on our show. She has a book about female Jewish resistance against the Nazis. Uh, also Dara Horn, a, 
yes. an interesting yes. uh, controversial polemicist uh, yes. she has a book everybody loves dead jews yes um I i'm guessing that both these women would actually be interested in the archive you looked at what surprised you about some of what you read what wouldn't you have expected is it the ordinariness of it the banality sure i mean that's that i think it's just the the, the, the casualness with which death is recorded um i guess death in that magnitude stops being something to stop and gawk at uh i think that the very very uh, recognizable characters you know little kids running around there's a story that i read um about a kid who whose mother gives her um, a coin and she gets to go spend it on anything she wants on the street, you know? And it reminded me so much of my daughter when she has an extra, or an extra when she has, a, 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 someone hands her a $5 bill for something and we go stand in front of the store forever. Um, I guess those echoes of how people behave, you know, redound over time, regardless of the, circumstance and then in other ways how the circumstances change how we behave so profoundly you're a novelist of course or your previous books have been novels did you did you grapple with the idea of of turning some of these entries into into fiction as opposed to simply doing a a non-fictional book on these archives no i'm not i'm not an historian worthy of 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 doing on fiction that work is best left to the people who are trained to do it. I am um, a maker upper of stuff. I really, I, I read about people and I start to imagine their lives and I start to embroider and I, 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 I think about them when I'm walking the dog or when I'm emptying the dishwasher or that, that these people become very real to me, even though I understand also that I've invented them. That's the sort of the weird, a double life that a lot of novelists lead, but I don't, I don't, um, I don't envy the historians. They have to look at all of it. I just got to look at the parts of the story that that um, I felt I could face. Do you feel, though, as a novelist, you had a particular—I use this word carefully—responsibility to, to 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 respect the the truthful stories of some of the people of the ghetto? If you're going to trans if you were going to take these stories and turn them into your own fiction? Yes, of course. Yes. Um, I used a few, few real people. Um, I was true to what I knew of them. The people I invented were all as plausible as I could make them. And the title of the book, we must not think of ourselves um, in the, in the Jewish tradition, when you sit Shiva after someone dies, you not think of yourself. You turn, you put cloth over the mirrors, you, th you, 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 you turn your thoughts outward. And, and so the title itself was a way of, of trying to honor the people who, who were killed that I was thinking about. We are speaking with Lauren Grudstein, the author of a sensational new book and new novel. We must not think of ourselves. It's got incredible reviews there. It's out tomorrow. It's already got an amazing review in the New York Times, and it's been selected by uh, Jenna Bush uh, for her TV show. So it's bound to be a bestseller, Lauren. Uh, <laughs> congratulations. Nice to, nice to have a good book story uh, for once. Um, although, of course, this is a story about anything but good and uh, certainly yeah. more about evil. 
what what do you think the archives in the book we must not think of ourselves your novel what does it tell us about the holocaust that perhaps most of us don't already know those of us who at least who have read lots of other books on this what's shocking to me is how how people know so little about the holocaust even now um you'd think in new jersey where i live holocaust education is mandated and yet um you know i still some of my son's friends were sort of astounded i was talking to them about this a little bit astounded at the numbers they had no idea astounded how recent it was they sort of thought it was somewhere along the civil war so so i don't know that people know that much actually. they thought it was in the civil war you mean in the 19th century they did they thought it was around the same time um not all of them and i don't want to you know impugn my son's friends but but they just they they weren't really aware and why 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 should they be if it's not plot necessarily or not talked about in their homes so um you know i I don't know that people know very much about the Holocaust, and I don't know necessarily the best way to preserve memory. But I do hope that telling stories like this is one way to perhaps remind people why so many of the Jewish people that they know maintain a sense of fragility, even in lives that look outwardly quite stable and safe. Um, the Holocaust is is a Jewish story, but it's also you know, a very human story and other um, groups of people have gone through their own genocides, their own holocausts. I hope that not just this story, but all of those stories are repeated and witnessed. It's a sort of hoary thing that people say again and again, but never again is something that we should aspire to. And maybe, maybe, maybe telling these stories is one way to achieve that goal. Lauren, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there seem to have been two European holocausts. Uh, the first was the organized industrial killing of Jews in the concentration camps, some of which, of course, are near in Poland, Auschwitz in particular, near Krakow. And on the other hand, more sort of pogrom style mass killings that tended to take place to the east as uh, German troops uh, occupied these countries. How much knowledge in 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 the ghetto, in the Polish ghetto, amongst Jews, was there of either of these holocausts? So there was also the, what they called the Holocaust by bullets in the Baltics, um, which was where people, um, the Jews of Vilnius, um, the Jews of um, Riga, were were taken to the nearby forests and and shot by the thousands. Um, they people knew about that. Many Polish Jews had relatives in these areas. Um, there were many Jews from what was called Vilna, Vilnius, um, who had moved to Warsaw as economic conditions declined in Lithuania. Um, so they knew. They knew. They thought, though, many many of the people. I mean, not everyone knew, right? Like the, in the same way that in any society, there are people who are more informed about anything. Some Jews knew, some Jews didn't know, some Jews wanted to know, some Jews wanted to look away. Those that knew, I think, told themselves that the Jews who were being killed were just caught in the crossfire, wrong place, wrong time, that the German army had to get them out of the way. They managed to convince themselves for a very long time that this would not happen to them. And so when the gross action um, came, the, the gross action, in, um, which in July of 1942 began moving 6,000 Jews a day from the the ghetto to uh, Treblinka, 
you know, they put the Nazis put up signs promising people who came, uh, like I think it's two kilos of bread and a kilo of jam, and people went for many reasons. But one of them is that I think they honestly believe that this couldn't possibly happen to them. What good would it do to kill all of them? They weren't hurting anybody. They weren't in the way of anything. Um, Poland had already been conquered. So, so they knew, I mean, people knew, but what they knew and what they were willing to face really varied. Um, from the archives that you read and built this novel around, when people, when, when the truth began to seep in, what, what was the reaction of people? I don't know, but my guess, the way that I presented it in this novel was a combination of some people were horrified, some people ran, some people accepted it. You know, your your whole world had been taken from you, your friends, your job, your community, your house, in some cases, your children. Your, by that point, you just go for the, the kilo of jam and you hope, you know? You, human beings, I think, react to these sorts of events in all sorts of different ways. And I tried in this novel to present a sort of spectrum of ways you that you might react. We're speaking with Lauren Grudstein, the author of We Must Not Think of Ourselves, a major new novel. It's out tomorrow. It's already getting great reviews. I think it's going to be a bestseller. Uh, I want to thank uh, Liberties Quarterly for helping bring this as high-quality content. It's a quarterly journal of culture and politics, edited and founded by Leon Weaseltier, who is also from a family of uh, Holocaust survivors. I'm going to run a a short feature on liberties and then we'll be back with uh we will be back with lauren grudstein to talk a little bit more about the novel without giving away its whole plot so don't go away anymore beyond the news the noise there is nuance insight liberties it's not just a journal of ideas it's a meteor of intelligent substance it's the place to be for engaged citizens politics opinion substance Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe at libertiesjournal.com. Strongly encouraged. Uh, as is the novel that we're talking about today, We Must Not Think of Ourselves, by Lauren Grodstein. Uh, it's coming out tomorrow. It's already getting... Fabulous reviews. Congratulations again, Lauren. It's nice to have such a, a good, heartwarming story. Uh, I don't want to give away the novel because we want everyone to read it. Uh, but tell me a little bit about the main character or one of the main characters, uh, Adam Pascal. Why did you choose him? Why is he uh, one of the main figures in, in the novel? Um, he, he, we share a job. Uh, I, too, am an English teacher. Um, we share a love of certain books um, and some poems. Uh, he likes Wordsworth and he likes um, uh, Melville and so do I. A lot of Polish people were reading all sorts of books and translations, seeing American movies back then. Um, I also like to write from a male perspective. I find that that gives me the sort of necessary separation uh, between me and my characters, which allows me to imagine them more fully. So of my novels, all one has been from the point of view of a, of a man. I also liked that he was not a father and not a husband. I think that for so many people, their choices were really constricted by trying to protect the people that they loved. But if he was already a widow, widower when he arrived in uh, 
at the in the ghetto, he could make choices based more on his own uh, needs and not those of other people, and that gave him more latitude as a character. Uh, he, as you say, he's a school teacher. What's his story? How does he end up in the ghetto, and why is his story so intriguing and unusual? He was part of the small but um, but present um, sort of. Um, class of Jewish intelligentsia. It, Poland was not like Germany. In Germany, many, many Jews had fully assimilated and intermarried and um, were working in, in the highest echelons of government and culture. In Poland, Jews were not quite as assimilated, but there were Jews who had intermarried. There were Jews who had who worked in, in the capital, who worked in culture. He was an English teacher, but he worked at a Polish school, which meant that he got a better you know, pay. He had married a Polish Catholic woman um, whose family uh, deeply <laughs> re uh, rejected or resisted his his marriage. Um, you know, and he, uh, I live with a lot of animals here and they all like to be part of the show. You know, he was, he was special because I wanted him to be special, but I'm sure that there were people like him in the in, in Warsaw at the time, he was a very, very ordinary man with certain talents and certain hopes living in an extraordinary time. This I, is uh, my writing assistant right here. Yeah, I can see. And uh, for people listening, it's a dog. <laughs> dog. I'm sure he's celebrating with you, Lauren, the acclaim of your novel. He started celebrating um, at three in the morning. You mentioned yeah. that the Polish Jews were mostly different from the Russian, uh, German Jews, and they were less assimilated. Yes. Adam was assimilated. He had a Catholic wife who died, and he lived quite well. Was he particularly astonished with what happened? Although, of course, it wasn't happening in Poland. And how much do you get into all the controversies about the role and responsibility of Poles? who were also simultaneously being persecuted and perhaps doing some of the persecuting. Correct, absolutely. The One of the, the things that I think is really remarkable is how um, the Polish, the invasion of Poland by the Germans was, was presented to me when I learned about World War II as, as almost a, a simple, a matter of a month. And it wasn't a big deal compared to so many other battles in World War II. And then I went to Poland and learned about the unbelievable trauma of that invasion, the way that France and England, who were supposedly Polish allies, walked away, and how the Poles were, who who the Germans considered the drawers of water, this is their language, and um, the hewers of wood for the Reich. You know, they were considered in the, in the sort of weird Aryan social or, or racial hierarchy, the Slavs were above the Jews, but well below the Aryans, and they were um, they were treated very badly, um, and often, you know, you know, they were not. Look, compared to the way that the Jews were treated, they were not uh, tortured in quite the same way, but they were not. They were. They also were subject to many humiliations. Um, Poles, like everybody else, there was a variety of behaviors. There were some, you know, the famous zookeepers in Warsaw. There were there were some who behaved righteously under incredible threat. There were some who chose to look away and pretend that it was happening. There were some who took advantage of the circumstances to um, 
take their former Jewish neighbor's property. I, you know, the, the welcome that I have gotten in Poland every time I've been there, and of course it's many, many years later and I'm an American tourist, which makes me a, a different kind of visitor, but I have found Polish people to be warm, welcoming, and often quite upfront about what their country survived. And I appreciate all of that. We had another novelist on the show a year or two ago, um, Christian Beck, who argues that World War II remains so seductive for novelists I, yes. who want to write about good and evil. But I'm guessing for you, that's probably not entirely true. That's too simplified, isn't it? Well, I do think that that one of the reasons World War II remains uh, such a subject for so many of us is that it is it does feel like a like a throwback to a simpler time when the American intentions were less complicated and where the storylines are are sort of easier to divide into black and white as opposed to gray. Um, I'm not interested particularly in black and white stories, but I do understand the seduction of them. I was also quite interested in your earlier comment or, or article about how the Second World War has never really ended. I learned that um, that the, the Israeli War of Independence was the final battle of World War II. Um, this isn't exactly related to your comment, but just thinking about some of the books that you've referenced so far in our conversation. And if that's the case, then that means that World War II really hasn't ended because Israel continues to battle, right? So the Second World War remains a perpetual source, not just of narratives about good and evil, but a perpetual source of stories about human drama overall that are current, that might still be current. And then, of course, we have Ukraine as well. We talked right. to... You mentioned the Israel uh, War of Independence. Um, again, headlines are dominated by the war, the current war in Gaza and the atrocities in Israel uh, in October. Uh, you reposted uh, an X about um, from someone asking uh, whether Jews should or shouldn't be paranoid. What do you think as a, a novelist, um, what, what responsibility do you have in today's world of December, November, December 2023, given the situation in the Middle East, given the rise of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia? Today, there was a shooting of three Muslim kids uh, in upstate New York. What particular responsibility do you think, if any, Lauren, you have as a novelist on this front? I mean, my responsibility first is as a human being, which is to pray fervently for peace on all sides. My second responsibility is to understand that just because I'm telling stories of Jewish trauma, it does not erase in any way the very real stories of Palestinian trauma, that unfortunately the world contains enough pain for all of us. And right now we're all having some, um, we're all sharing in some. I think my, my biggest responsibility as a novelist is simply to the truth. I would really like to be um, as honest as I can in what I say, in what I write, which seems like a strange thing for a fiction writer to say, but I think what I mean by being honest is that I'm honest about the emotions, the history itself, and the the truth of the, the lingering pain that all of that history still causes us. People have asked me how I feel about this novel being timely, and what I say is that I would never in a million years want a book about the Holocaust to feel timely. But if it is going to feel timely, then I hope it also serves as a cautionary tale. 
Kirkus loved the book. Star gave it a star everywhere it's appeared. It's got great reviews. They 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 focused on your ability to tell the the small details. Was that purposeful? Do you think even if it is a novel, that getting the details right is so important? You touched on that. Oh, yes, of course, yes, yes, yes. That's how we live our lives, right? We live our lives in small details. We don't live our lives in in um, huge narrative arcs. We live our lives in whether or not we remember to pick up the dry cleaning and the fact that the, you know, we let the dog out to chase a squirrel and someone hit it with a car. We, we live our lives and, you know, the triumph of our kids first tap recital and the sorrow of, uh, you know, our son's missed tryout for the soccer team. We, we live our lives in these details and, and these details are what make us human and what makes us human usually makes for a good story. So I'm always interested in the small details. And it's the small details that form the background to this book about ordinary people and the ordinary details of their small lives and these enormous yes. historical events. Yes. And are we all like living small lives in the face of enormous historical events right now? Like, I mean, my characters, one is a kid who loved dinosaurs and, and you know, and got kicked off a soccer team because he was Jewish. One is a girl who loves going to the movies. Um, and that's the one thing she wants to do when she gets out of there is go to the movies. Uh, one is a woman whose father uh, ran a fish store and she loves, um, she used to love to go to the fish market with him the, and see all the different uh, kinds of fish for sale. So, so yeah, I mean, just, just people sort of living their ordinary lives. I don't think that I don't like watching superhero movies particularly. I don't like reading fantasy that much because I I just really do revel in the details of ordinary people living their day to day lives. Final question, Lauren. Um, I I'm not sure if you've seen Ridley Scott's new movie Napoleon yeah, yet. I saw it. Yeah. Did you see it? No, not yet, but I'd like to. It's an interesting movie, and it in a way it it makes it seems to at least in my view, transformed Napoleon into a very ordinary fellow, rather small mm -hmm. man, because he was physically small, but yes. small in every sense. Yes. Napoleon was, in the 19th century, I think, considered in, in the way in which we think of uh, Hitler today. Um, uh, do you think there'll ever be a time where we can normalize what happened uh, in the Second World War, and particularly when it comes to the Holocaust and the Jews? What do you mean? I don't. What do you mean by normalize? Well, what I mean by is treating Napoleon as just a rather small man. Oh. Two hundred years later, he can get away with it, even if hundreds of thousands of people were killed in the Napoleonic Wars. I wonder whether time eventually will allow historians and novelists like yourself to just treat what happened in the Second World War in the Warsaw Ghetto or elsewhere as just another chapter in history. I don't know. My the only thing I do know for sure is that more more tragedy will come to replace it, and that we will have fresh hells to write about if we want to. And perhaps the numbing and the distancing that is caused by time will also be caused by the fact that we now have Ukraine to write about, and we have the kibbutz on October seventh to write about, and we have. Gaza to write about, and we have Syria to write about, and we have children and women in Iran to write about. You know, the world is not going to stop giving us these 
fresh terrors to write about. So perhaps for that very reason, all of this will start to seem more normal, but I hope it never does and never is.